Hi, Lily. Hi, Anna. Do you want to know what I just did? What did you just do? I just killed a massive spider crawling across the floor with my shoe. Why? I don't really care how big the spider is, but no one steals my shoe. <laughs> but <-dum> <laughs> receiving any kind of dad joke yeah this is your <laughs> best ones that will but we it will bring us on to conversations about human nature um, and insects in insects yes and and grievability of lives <laughs> going there hi so i'm anna i'm lily and this is liliana's pre-read media take the podcast where we analyze and discuss audience preconceptions of media from a queer feminist lens yeah <laughs> Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind. Let's just get straight into the summary We're going to talk about um, Hayao Miyazaki's movie that started Studio Ghibli, and that mm. sort of started this new wave of anime that allowed him to form and found Studio Ghibli. So we're going to talk about that today, about the beautiful movie Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Yes. But we're going to talk about the dub that was done in the early 2000s with Uma Thurman and Alison Lohman and Patrick Stewart. In a world, <laughs> in a world where uh, a thousand years ago, a war called the Seven Days of Fire killed most humans and created a sea of decay that's also called the toxic forest or the toxic jungle. And toxic refers to the spores of the plants that make the air unbreathable. Mm -hmm. Near the forest in the Valley of the Wind, a princess named Nausicaa is exploring the forest with her glider while her people try to feed themselves in the valley where they've managed to keep the air clean. After a giant Tolmachian warship crashes in the valley, a kidnapped princess from the Pejita people that was on board in shackles dies. Is it Pejita or Pejite? They say Pejite in the... In the, uh, in the Japanese version they kept saying Pejite. Oh, Pechite. okay. okay. Yeah. Again, I think it's one of those things where... It depends, yeah. I'm probably going to say Pejite or Pejita. I think yeah. it's fine if they say Pejite in the English version, you can absolutely call, it pe call them Pejite people. After a giant Tolmachian warship crashes in the valley, a kidnapped princess from the Pechita people that was on board in Jekyll's dies. The Tolmachians were transporting a giant red egg. I don't know how else, what else to call it. They also called it a fetus in some summaries. <laughs> Which sounds Ooh. really disgusting. Yeah. Mm. Um, more of the Tolmachians show up and they demand the valley to obey. Um, they kill the king, Nausicaa's father, and unveil their plan to overthrow all the people of the sort of frontal regions to the um, sea, to the sea of decay, to mm -hmm. the forest. Mm -hmm. uh, and together they want to burn down the toxic jungle. Mm -hmm. Led by her highness, Kushana, they kidnap uh, Nausicaa but are attacked by a Pichite fighter pilot, who we later learn is the dead princess's brother, Aspel. And they all crash into the toxic jungle. And while trying to rescue Aspel, both he and Nausicaa fall beneath the quicksand of the jungle and into breathable air. Mm -hmm. They find out that the jungle is actually healing itself and creating clean water and air, and that the insects are just defending the forest. Nausicaa and Aspel return to Pichite, but find out Pichite leadership purposely led insects to destroy the Tolmachians that were attacking the city, a plan that the Tolmachians are also doing currently to the Valley of the Wind. The Pachite then kidnap Nausicaa, but Aspo, his mother and the others, help her escape the Pachite ship on her glider. Nausicaa sees the ohms, these giant insects, 
stampeding towards the valley and finds the Tromekians kidnapped and stabbed an own baby that they are dragging over the land with a type of plane. And after Nausicaa stops the plane, they land in the middle of an acid lake. Mm. <laughs> Kushana. <laughs> this will become very important later on. Uh, Kushana, meanwhile, has tried to reenact the red egg, uh, but she doesn't cook it for very long, so the giant warrior sort of deflates. Nausicaa frees the own baby and forces the soldiers to drop her and the baby before the stampede and they sort of run her over. The ohms then stop and their eyes turn from red to blue. They have calmed down. They extend yellow tentacles to heal Nausicaa and the Ultimakians leave in the remaining ships, but the Pachite remain, at least some of them do, um, to rebuild the valley. And meanwhile, we see a tree growing underneath the Sea of Decay. Yeah. There's hope. There's hope. <laughs> That's what Nausicaa's all about, really. Put this in my notes, but like Nausicaa, a new hope. <laughs> Like so many Star Wars references. Yeah, yeah we're going to talk about Star Wars references in a bit, because this movie also is very different to Star Wars in some interesting ways. Yes. Um, so yeah, so we want to start off talking about like Nazca as a pre-read text, just a little, for a little bit, um, because obviously it's dystopian fiction. So uh, definition of pre-read text, i uh, just like to go over that again. So it's the idea of when you haven't engaged with the source material of a story or piece of media, but you have a strong sense of what it's about um, because you've interacted with it in various adaptations of that original material. So like you have this cultural consciousness of a story or characters from a story, images or concepts, but they might have very little or nothing to do with the original source material and instead all come from the adaptations that come after it. And this is a term that we've taken from Rowan Ellis, we'll link her video below. So we want to talk a little bit about kind of the genre of dystopia because we think this film does some interesting things with the idea. It's Interesting because now we like this idea of dystopia. Um, you often have like a lot of like um, female main characters. Like I think from like the Hunger Games onwards, you sort of a lot of YA literature. A lot of YA literature, <laughs> yeah. And you've got that kind of like I think because of the Hunger Games, it's sort of become and you have like um, oh, Divergent series and Thank stuff. Thank you. I genuinely, yeah. my brain was going to say Descendants, and I was Descendants. like, that's not what it's called. <laughs> I didn't read that book. I don't, did you read that book? No, no. no we no, neither of us have read that book. Um, but it's it was sort of a copy of a copy. Like I'm not saying that it was sort of yeah. um, stealing from the original idea because I don't know when any of these books came out, to be mm. honest. Mm. But in terms of movie um, aesthetic, they all sort of became sort of the same thing. In yeah, a way. it was very hunger. I saw the first film. It was very Hunger Games. Also, speaking of spiders, that thing was like the boys in that. Oh, the Maze Runner. Yeah, yeah. I haven't. I that saw was like also dystopian way. Yeah, but it was sorry. very focused also on teenagers. Yes. Yeah, they love a teenager. I think. We can talk about this later, but I think the focus on teenagers, maybe that's because we're going to talk about the idea of like Nausicaa as like a bridge between um, yes. like human and nature and also different like human peoples. And between... Did you even put the together that like being a teenager is like a bridge between it's being a, a child? And She's a, a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> but um, specifically about Nausicaa as like, as like a female main character. So do you want to talk a bit about how like the idea of like kind of dystopian fiction, you often have the idea of like kind of like it's an apocalypse, you've got to like be the like one individual survivor you gotta like get into your bunker um with your supplies and your gun and like shoot anybody that comes near you um <laughs> who are you you're straight white male probably yeah. like yeah that's kind of the idea of sort of apocalypse that often you get but in this this movie does it quite differently when we talk about pre-read text we talk about sort of our preconceptions of what we sort of insert in terms of our understanding of something mm -hmm. if we see a poster if we see a dvd cover whatever yeah and in terms of this if you start watching it you see sort of this like 
unknown figure riding into town in the distance. So immediately you think Western because it seems to be also kind of desert type of landscape. Yeah. And so, but then you see this girl sort of like riding on a glider. But you first, again, I'm not joking, you first think it sort of looks like a bird, and then you think it's a plane, and then you see actually uh, like it's a teenage not, girl. Da, da, da. <laughs> so you immediately, because of the plane, sort of have like Star Wars references in your br mm. brain, I think, when you sort of see that. Mm -hmm. So you immediately think like sci-fi, a narrative sci-fi movie. Yeah. When did the first Star Wars film come out? Sorry. I'll look this up. 19... 77. Okay, so quite a bit earlier then. God, there's going to be a Star Wars fan. If you're like, lucky enough to have this, you'll be like, oh, how dare you? I'm so sorry. But I looked this up today because I wanted to know what's before this. But it's interesting because, God, episode oh, no, the seven, maybe. The first one of the newest trilogy yeah. begins pretty much similar to this yes. one. It's a very similar, even like with the eye covering and like this girl sort of exploring like a cave, like it's this game of topic. So in a sci-fi film, in terms of pre-read text, we sort of have this understanding. We're in a dystopian world. She has a glider. Yeah. So we have certain understandings of the story. We usually have weapons, gear, planes. Like here we have a glider. Like mm. new technology type stuff, which yeah. we do have here. Mm. I would say because the glider is like a technology that we don't have currently. Yeah. But it's also it's kind of quite simple in a way. It's very, yeah, it's futuristic in the way. Um, it's like futuristic um, in the sort of like its shape and that it's kind of like the blue energy that kind of makes it glide it's but also yeah like you said it's very simple it sort of like uses the wind to glide around yeah. so it's, it's just like a, it's like a glider it is a glider it's not like some sort of like huge you know kind of machine that like uses you kind of get the impression that it uses quite simple technology because yeah, it it's you know she she comes from a valley it's where they're realistic because it's so mm -hmm. like it seems the way that it's drawn the way it's animated it seems to be taking way more power from the wind Yes. But it does on its own in terms of like an energy boost. But yeah. you do have that aspect to it, but you don't really notice that that much. Yeah, because she comes from like the Valley of the Wind with the windmills. So you get that kind of idea of like that kind of like old timey technology, but like fused with this newness. So yeah, you kind of, it's sort of this technology sort of working really well, like with natural world, which we'll talk a bit more about later. Um, but yeah, it's not like, I don't know, some big warship, although there are warships in this. Yeah. So um, to get back to pre-read text, in mm -hmm. terms of what we expect, we usually, because again, this starts with the dude, we expect a man, we expect an outside perspective, for example, like uh, Luke Skywalker, we expect weapons, we expect violence, mm -hmm. we expect, you know, lasers or something, like yeah. really cool guns. We expect a big war at the climax, I think, as well, which I recently was thinking about, like mm -hmm. when we watch a sky, a sci mm -hmm. sky, <laughs> sky <-fi. laughs> well, they always take place like in, like, between planets or something. Mm -hmm. um, like in a sci-fi film, we tend to sort of expect a big war at the end or like the villain and the, our hero sort of fighting that's going to be like the climax or something. Oh, yes. Yes, you're totally right. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, but what do we get here is, I think, sort of subverting the tropes mm -hmm. very well. Um, we get a young female lead. Her biggest power is kindness and curiosity. And the goal is less sort of destruction and violence. Mm -hmm. And the enemies are in people not the insects the lasers are kind of pretty useless and the big climax is more kindness so one of the ways you could frame this movie is nausicaa new hope <laughs> yes and i think we sh this is a good time to talk about the um 
the movie poster, the American movie poster, because oh, yeah. I think that plays very much into the idea of like, what do you think a sci-fi film is going to be about? <laughs> it's just so weird. We'll link it in the show notes. So when we talk about the poster, we talk about the first time this was introduced to American audiences, because mm-hmm. this is a Japanese film, we should have also maybe said. I mean, I think Studio Ghibli, most people know, but yeah. yeah. But this was introduced by this company called New World Pictures, and they introduced many foreign films to American audiences. For example, The Tin Drums, in case you know that Günter Grass book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, The Tin Drum. The Tin Drum, yeah. The... I should know this, I'm German. <laughs> <laughs> and they won many Academy Awards doing this, and they also licensed Nausicaa for American audiences. Mm. So as if you know, if you know sort of early... Sailor Moon dubbing in English, it's horrendous. Like late 90s, early 2000s dubbing tends to be bad. It's kind of infamous for being bad in terms of English. (laughs) Okay. But they also took took out over 20 minutes from the film, Mm. which if you've seen it, like it's two hours long, but it's still like, you don't really feel like 20 minutes is something you could take out of this movie. Yeah, it's slow, but it's slow for a reason. Like it feels deliberate. Yeah, it is nice. You kind of go on this journey, like the first... The opening of it is really nice, um, like, you, you get to, yeah, it really brings you into the world, like, slowly, and you see Nausicaa, like, exploring this world and, like, taking her time through it, and I think that kind of slowness is quite key to it, because it's not about, co- sort of, like, rushing to the end. Like the Also, whole like, point... the silence of certain things, when you just see <gasps> yes, the landscape is so silence. important, because you can sort of, t- it's also important, I think, in terms of it being a dystopian narrative. Because you do sort of feel like this world is pretty much empty except for very specific yes. islands where people have sort of created... Sorry, for very specific places where people have created these islands mm-hmm. where they can still live. Yeah. But most of it is sort of... When Nausicaa's gliding over the desert, it's quite silent and that's yes. really nice. And you sort of feel this world being empty to a large degree and a lot of things being dead. Yes. And the whole point is like, you know, it's been a thousand years since this thing, like since the apocalypse kind of happened. Um, and there's going to be like thousands of years more like this is not like a kind of you rush to the end because there is no end in this film really like you see the end of this one little story but that's not the end of the whole story yeah and so like that continues in the manga yeah Ooh, yes. <laughs> that. Um, back to the first american version um so, well done <laughs> thank you um but if you look at the poster from um yeah that they made of it it's just, oh, it's just really weird <laughs> it makes no sense you said it to me i was like what is this hot mess this is even a word in english pegasus yeah, Pegasus, know. yeah, like there's winged a, horse. There's a winged horse in it that has nothing. There's, there's no, no Pegasus in the, in the film. There's no Pegasus. <laughs> now I'm wondering whether there was probably possibly in the manga, but I didn't see one. Oh, but also, maybe. like, these people, like, they didn't care. If that's the poster that they made, they didn't read the manga. They didn't even watch this film, really. Yeah, because there, there's no, I think there's no Aspel, who's the, like, main boy character. There is, like, a dude, though, in the middle. Yes, there's a dude in the middle. And which dude? I think, I think that is Aspel, even though he doesn't look is quite... Is th- It must be, because there's no other dude. But he's right <laughs> in the middle, and he's there, like, I'm the hero. And it's like, who is... He doesn't even look like Aspel. And Aspel is not a massively main... I mean, he's a main character, but... Nausicaa is the main character. It's called Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. It's her story. Yeah. She's like off in the corner on the left or on the right. Like it, it's such a sort of like the ma- like the male main character and sort of uh, yeah, like and it's got the um The giant warrior. The giant warrior who again turns up for like a few minutes. That's very deliberate as well, I think. Um, but like kind of melting at the bottom, it's sort of like This is the weird part. <laughs> he's not that important. He takes up a lot of the poster, and at the same time, he's sort of in a weird way the best depicted one on the poster like the rest of them are so distorted where you truly have to sort of figure out either like or look at one of these people you think who are you or the other ones you sort of go like oh that's supposed to be that person yeah but the giant warrior is weirdly enough sort of like the best depicted and then he looks sort of the most grotesque 
Yeah. But the other ones are just so hard to sort of even figure out what they are. Sorry, I'm trying to find it now, but... Because the, the movie is called something else. Um, oh. Warriors of the Wind, possibly? Which, okay, so if it's called Warriors of the Wind, that makes a lot of sense, like... Because the whole point of Nausicaa, she isn't really a warrior, but they're kind of, if you're dressing it up as like a warrior story, you're like, there's violence, there's a big fight. Again, it's playing on those tropes of sort of like what you expect, like, maybe yeah, no one's called yeah. a warrior except for the red thing. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's interesting though, because Netflix also calls it, like, they call, in the little description, they call her a warrior as well. And I'm like, Nausicaa... Really? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't see that, interesting. In the little, when you know, in the screen, like, you, you leave it for a bit and it kind of goes on to the synopsis. Yeah. Yeah, because Nausicaa isn't well, that's a warrior. interesting. Yeah, she's, it's like the opposite of that. Like you said, there is no, there is like a big kind of climatic sort of fight, but like the yeah. climax of that fight is not a fight, it's yeah. her being like, no, I, I refuse to fight, <laughs> there's no need to be afraid. Anyway, it's interesting how, it's a bit, bit Jennifer's body, because, don't you think? It very much is, It yeah. is, yeah. In this way that it's being packaged as this kind of, yeah, this sort of like kind of masculine dystopia, sort of like hero's journey, action adventure sort of story. And there yeah. is action adventure. There is like, you know... If you are... like adventure movies, if you like sci-fi movies, that's not what we're saying. We're saying if you like all of these like type mm. of movies, you're going to love this. It's yeah. still going to be really fun and really adventurous and all these things. But it just doesn't sort of sell itself. Like the movie itself is not as basic as the yeah. advertisement makes it want to be. Yeah, it completely misses. It's a good it. point about Jennifer's body. Then. Yeah, it's another Rowan Ellis. That's, she, she made a video about that. I haven't seen it because I don't like horror films and I haven't seen Jennifer's body. But yeah, I think we'll you, I mean, that. you can take it. I think because I managed to survive. Okay. The, the video essay. The video essay. I will not watch Jennifer's body. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Now, we are not going to do horror films on this podcast. Sorry, I love guys. queer narratives of any kind, but absolutely got them not. No. <laughs> we will do some horror movies, maybe. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, yeah. certain ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I love that film. So it's very hard to sort of find a copy of this. And believe me, I did try. Mm -hmm. And one of the video blogs and essays I watched was talking about that there was actually a German dubbing of it somewhere on the internet. Oh. And I tried to find it on the website that he mentioned, and it wasn't there. So I was very, very disappointed <laughs> because I was actually the person who could actually have could have possibly watched it because it was picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't there, so it was very sad. But um, from the 20 minutes that are sort of cut from what he said, which I think is important, is that it sort of loses its environmental message. Mm. Let's dive into some history now. Sure. Let's go into the history corner and uh, dive into a bit of history. Anna has done our amazing, um, she's done all the archive research done i haven't really looked into the history of this i was just we're currently doing a pandemic that is my excuse for why it was not in an actual archive <laughs> <laughs> yeah google unfortunately yeah google scholar i i am a google scholar um no. but um <laughs> what we're talking about yeah so we're going to talk about the history a bit now um anna take it away tell me what you learned okay so for one i thought this was interesting we can maybe dive into this a little bit later but also the idea that this is about a war and this is a movie that is being shown and made during mm -hmm. the Cold War, which is the time mm. period that neither one of us was alive for. No. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> yeah, our intergenerational knowledge does not extend that far yeah. back. We need an extra person on this podcast. Maybe that's more interesting to talk about sports, like the silent possible thing that could kill you at any <gasps> second. Oh, no, that's right. So when we talk about history and Miyazaki movies, we have to, of course, talk about the fact that Miyazaki himself lived through the air raids. Bombings, I guess, yeah. the bombings. At the end of World War Two, yeah, with Miyazaki's work, you can see that influence, or like it, you can definitely see that influence of living through having had that experience, yeah, um, in his work. And he himself 
is quoted as saying, I remember the air raids, I see my street burning. Mm. So this obviously had an impact on him yeah. and what he then chose to sort of talk about. And you can really see that influence in Nausicaa, especially in so like the war that sort of created this destruction, this apocalypse that happened like a thousand years ago. Which is interesting because that means that Nausicaa herself actually didn't watch it happen. She just has been told this through stories. She's she just, wasn't alive for it. Yes. But then her father also wasn't. No, it's just... Interesting. We'll talk about the idea of living in, like, the aftermath of destruction and the aftermath of apocalypse in yeah. one of the future... In probably, maybe even the next section or the section yeah. after. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is that I sort of... Obviously, we both heard about the bombings, like, in history class or just on the news when people talked about World War II. I never thought about sort of the reality of these things. And one of the things that was mentioned that I found on online, which I didn't think about before, is that one of the consequences of the bombings was that the sun was blocked out for days and also the firestorms lasted for days. So these weren't just like, I don't know why, but I always thought about like bombs dropping as like one event. Yes. And then obviously major consequences, but I never thought about the idea of like the yeah. sun being blocked out for days and obviously this mm. caused crop failure and then famine as a result, yeah. like people didn't have food. This is really key, I think, the idea of like the extend, like an extended apocalypse and yes. like the idea of like apocalypse, yeah, isn't just like one event. I think N.K. Jemison, who wrote um, the fifth season and like the, that series of books, she talks quite a lot about kind of the idea of, yeah, apocalypse as sort of extended past, present and future and not just like a singular event. Um, which I think you can also see in this film and those ideas, yeah, the idea, especially of like in Nausicaa of like environmental degradation and like in the environmental impact of an apocalypse, of a bombing. I think it's also interesting in terms of, I was just thinking about this because when we were talking about pre-read text, when we talk about the bombs being dropped, we always have this image of this mushroom cloud, right? Mm. This mushroom cloud sort of represents all of that destruction to us. Mm. We just see like when people talk about that aspect of history, in history, when it's in on the news, on TV, we just see the mushroom cloud. We don't really talk about the specifics of what that meant, right? Yes. We just see that image and then we know everything. We're supposed to fill in all the yeah, gaps. So that's the in. idea of pre-read text. Yeah. That's just an example oh, of it. Just bring that back in. Yes. <laughs> yeah, our podcast. We have a theme and we're using that theme. <laughs> Okay, now we're going to talk about some themes and some characters of the movie that we sort of found interesting and what, how they intersect, link up with the theme, storyline of the movie. Yeah, yeah. so right now I think we want to talk about the dichotomy of human versus nature, or particularly in Nausicaa, like human versus the insect as the like very non-human other, Yes. which I think is really interesting. So I want to rela- relate this to a bit of reading that I, I think I did this back in like first year, um, but I basically read a chapter of Judith Butler's Frames of War. Um, I think it was called um, Survivability, Vulnerability, Survivability, Affect. And basically she's just talking about kind of the way that like lives are perceived during war and sort of um, the idea that like all life is precarious um, and like we all have very porous borders. So it's like one body, like you are not like you don't exist as yourself because you li- exist in relation to others. It's like there's always like a community aspect even if you don't want there to be yes exactly so it's like we exist in like we share space we share time um you know we share like material resources we rely on each other for that and we share touch we share language um and so we like exist in vulnerability as well because like say if i attack you you might attack me back we have there's that like mutual consequence yes there's mutual precariousness um, and you can exploit that to your advantage, but then that also puts you in danger. And you're also ex- like put, um, exploiting the vulnerability of someone that you rely on. Um, and so Judith Butler basically argues that like 
we are very, you know, there is that precariousness in order to survive. Like you rely on that and that can be exploited or that can like work to your advantage or work against you. Um, but in times of war, specifically she's looking at like the US, um, but in times of war, um, she argues that um, they you kind of create this like idea of grievable life and that's like the self, that is the subject, that's your nation state. Um, and then you have the ungrievable life that's seen as like a threat to life. So it's not even a life, it was never a life in the first place, only a threat to life. And that allows you to kind of attack and kind of see yourself as, like present yourself as um, impervious to harm and the destruction that you wreak as um, righteous, even though like that may not be, the, or like that's, she argues that isn't the case, but like you create this framework where that's, that's uh, like allowable. And so you can commit violence against someone else, even though you depend on them to survive. Okay, and I just ask one thing. Yes, So please. whichever way you sort of put yourself in relation to the, to the other person, mm -hmm. to the other group, you're always sort of putting yourself in danger or benefiting, but you can never sort of always determine which way it's going to go. Exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of precar precariousness of like, yes. you don't, yeah, you've got to, you've got to engage with that other. Right. Um, you can't like, and the self and that idea of like the boundary between the self and the other is very porous. And that is like, she kind of argues that isn't really that kind of, kind of really strict divide that you kind of try and create. Like you can try and imagine that there is, but there isn't really. Which is um, really interesting because the whole American stance on this historically mm -hmm. is this idea of individuality. Yes, Not just in terms yeah. of the individual American, but also as a country. The idea of America as a founding nation, I'm talking about the colonized America, I'm not talking about pre-Columbus, is this idea of staying out of out of other countries' um, fights and discussions and wars. Yes. But I think that's interesting what you said about this idea that you never can sort of take yourself out of your relation to the other group or other person mm -hmm. because that is literally the idea behind America in terms of the colonized white America. And I'm yeah. not dealing with any European issues, whatever you guys do over there, we don't care. <laughs> yeah, again, given the Middle East and everything, that seems like a strange view, but that is historically sort of what their yeah, the political stance was. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah isolationism, exactly. But then she also argues that the kind of idea of um, who is counted as like the subject in the life is based on recognizability and so like likeness basically. Ooh. So like you see someone, you see them as like yourself and that's how you kind of determine they are like the self, they are the subject. Sorry, maybe this is very simplistic, but do you mean that, or does she, do they mean that in terms of looks or in terms of culture, in terms of all of the above? I think in terms of all of the above. Oh, okay. I, I may be oversimplifying this theory slightly, but like this is my interpretation. I think it's okay. <laughs> And I want to now, now that I've done that really long explanation, bring it back to Nazca. Because <laughs> I think the, the insects in the ohm really represent that like unrecognizable other. They are like the thing that humanity pits itself against in really interesting ways. I just asked Lily whether she remembered the story and apparently I'm too old for this. But probably most people remember it. Cecil the lion, which was a lion that was killed. I don't remember which country, but in Africa. Because a dude, like an American dentist, flew down there to hunt and everybody talked about it and it was this idea of like oh this cute animal just wanted to live their life mm -hmm. and this thing got killed like who gets to determine what animals are cute enough for us to care about yeah that's what i wanted to get yeah exactly <laughs> so there was a point to this <laughs> <laughs> exactly because you have like um like tito tito yeah the yeah, tito. the uh, fox squirrel the fox squirrel, right? I think so, yes. Yes, yeah, because I call it like a fox cat, and you were like, no, 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 Lily. Like, not that there's anything wrong with cats, but it's fox squirrel. It's cute as hell. It looks so, like a Pokemon. It's so cute. But then the ohm, the ohm are terrifying. Because <laughs> the way that their animators, well, like, um, they have They this... move, they don't move like, 
Like a cat would be sort of cute and lovely and sort of elegant. They move because their shells move. Yeah. As they go and they have a lot of like legs that go yeah. really fast. They're either uncannily still or just like Ooh, yeah. those legs are going everywhere. Like it's terrifying, like the way they're animated, like yeah, either like kind of inhumanly quick or inhumanly still. When you look at the ohm, you can't tell what's going on underneath. It's not like they don't have a face. They have lots of eyes, like too many eyes. Yeah. Um, but you don't under, you don't know what's going on with them. Like if you look at a dog or if you look at a cat or if you look at the fox squirrel. Yeah. If you look at Tito, you see a facial expression. You see that thing being scared. You see that thing sort of mm-hmm. coising up to Nausicaa. You see sort of love or affection and all these things. Yeah. You don't get that with the Om at all because you, you just have eyes. You can project that. Exactly. Yes. You can project that emotion onto them. But yeah, with the Om, exactly. You just have those eyes. You can only tell when they're feeling something, when they're feeling rage. Like, either they're calm and you have no idea what's going on, or it's red eyes, they have two they're moods. attacking you. Yeah, it's like two moods. Oh, such a mood. Um, yeah. Or that's, or that's how it appears to humans. Like, yes. you can't tell in between that. Maybe Nausicaa can, but, like, from an audience perspective, you see, like, kind of, a, don't know what's going on under there, or rage is going to kill you. The eyes don't have, like, a flicker to them. You don't have eyelids. You don't yes. have any of these things no that pupils. you sort of use in order to sort of communicate with each other, in order to read each other's faces. As far as we can, as far as we personally are capable of, mm-hmm. but we don't get that from the own at all. But the reason we talk about this is because we think it's interesting how Miyazaki chose to sort of depict the thing that they are most scared of, because he could have made them uh, this much easier for him. I was also thinking about the giant ice bear in. I'm um, sorry, not the ice bear. What do you guys call them in English? Polar bear. Polar bear. Thank you. <laughs> in German, sorry, they call ice bears. <laughs> The giant polar bear and the golden compass. Mm. Like we sort of get more of a human interaction. But one of the reasons, and mind you, people are still scared now of insects. But one of the reasons we aren't as scared of them as we could be is because yeah. they're tiny. Yes. The ohms are giant. They're huge. They're ter- it's like, yeah, of course, like the kind of like humans are attacking these things, think they're evil, going down to burn them. It's like these things are like so other than human and such a, like they're huge. Like, and that makes them a threat. Like so the cool. giant spider in Lord of the Rings, you think about Aragog in Harry Potter uh, and the yeah. Chamber of Secrets. Mm. You think about these... I do remember there was a she. I don't remember the name of the spider in um, Lord Shilop. of the Rings. Shelob. You Wow. I, know. I read those books. I read those books and watched those films a done. lot of times. I had them read to me, but I don't remember what the spider was called. I just remember the line, she's always hungry. That's why I remember there was a she. <laughs> The reason these insects are sort of made shine is to make them even more terrifying mm. to us because this thing that we cannot communicate with, with a facial expression. And Miyazaki decided, no, like the thing that you have to learn to love in this movie is the thing with many legs, which are creepy, many eyes that don't tell you anything yeah. other than rage or silent, which could mean a lot of different things. And also position them next to things like the fox squirrel, mm. like the sort of cute animal that you can sort of carry on your own body, like yeah. a cute thing that will sort of follow you around like a Pokemon. And he didn't make this easy for us to sort of just give us something where sort of like this of the line, where everybody could sort of come together and be like, no, this is cute. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, it's not like, oh, you should like the environment, like you should like nature because it's cute because you yes. can relate to it. It's like, no, you should like nature because it's important, like... It's not about it's not about what the human thinks of the nature. It's just the fact that it's there. It's like this is important regardless of what you think of it, regardless of how you feel about it. That's a really good point. That just reminded me. I had a, a biology teacher where I graduated from grammar school, and she said whenever we talk about environment, she always said it's like a fifth grade answer to talk about the environment is like oh it's pretty, 
And she was like, that's not really the issue. <laughs> like the point of environmentalism is not to be like, oh, I want all the different colors of flowers to exist. Mm. Like that's not the issue. Yeah. <laughs> that all these things are sort of pretty. These things don't exist to sort of pl be pleasing to us aesthetically. Yes. And in this world, it's like the Oma really important for human survival and for the world's survival beyond the human as well. The way we talk about bees, for example, when bees are dying, we talk about honey, we talk about the environment. We aren't introduced to Oms as something that exists for us. However, Nausicaa, even from the beginning, she has like um, that connection to the Om. So what I wanted to get to was the idea of like interconnection and the way that like Nausicaa like senses that connection with the Om and the connection with the natural world. This is maybe going a little bit away from Judith Butler's theory, but um, even though the Om is like presented as something that's very other and like otherworldly. Um, you still get that idea that like human and humans and Ohm are very interconnected at the same time. So you have Nausicaa being able to like sense um, kind of when an Ohm is like uh, sense that kind of disruption in the force. Like you kind of see her react to something before you see what's going on. So in the very first like when they're enraged or when they seem to sort of change mood, she can sort of sense it. Yes, and she can sense. So in that first scene. Um, she sort of looks up and looks around and she's like, my heart is pounding, what's going on? Mm -hmm. You as like an audience member can't like see or hear anything. And it's only like a little bit later that like you hear like, um, I, I think it's like an explosion of some kind. Yes. And so she can pick up on like changes in sort of like own behavior and interactions between human and own, which I think is really key, um, which is something that the own can also do. Like they can sense and the insects can all sense like gunshots and like changes um, and like disruptions. And so it's the idea that like, even though these things seem really far apart, that boundary is really porous um, because like, um, yeah, the own can, whenever like a human interacts with the, with the insects or like shoots a gun, the own react to that, the insects react to that. Nausicaa can also sense when the insects are like um, disturbed, when there's some sort of disturbance between humans and ohms. Um, and she kind of acts as that bridge between them. Much like the wind. <laughs> And we wanted to talk a little bit about the wind in the story, mm. which is very important, much more so than I thought about the first time I watched this, or the second or third time. So the wind is kind of important, but it's also really dangerous in this world, because the wind is sort of what spreads the spores, and therefore endangers the humans because it spreads the toxins. Yeah. But it also, at the same time, allows for flight, which means freedom and beauty. Mm. This also, and I just want to mention this on the side, like, Miyazaki's father owned an airplane parts manufacturing company, and every single one of these movies, except for Princess Mononoke, has planes in it. And that's because that takes place in the 14th century. <laughs> so yeah. Um, we have, in the story, we have windmills, which carry clean energy, water. Do they also maybe just mill? Like flour or yeah. something, probably. <laughs> you yeah. know, mills. Mills. <laughs> um, do they also like bring water where Nausicaa has her laboratory? The wind also stops blowing at the climax of this film. Mm. It's very important. It starts again when Nausicaa sacrifices herself. Yes, when the Ohm and the humans are brought back into like a kind yes. of harmony. Well, nice. We sort of have this like balance of nature and human again. Yeah, or kind of precarious balance, but it's yes. not like they're just head to head and fighting. Like yeah. it's not like they like the Ohm are going to exterminate the humans anymore. It's never in balance for very yeah. long. <laughs> because, like you said, it's like the winds will like carry the spores. Like it can be a danger. Like that connection between like the self and the other can be a danger, but it can also like 
the wind also carries Nausicaa around, it carries her across. Like, there's a lot of air travel in this film because there are, there's, like, no railways or anything. Like, you have to travel by air to get anywhere because the population is so scattered. So it's like the wind connects, and that's a good thing because it can connect people, it can connect means that um, Nausicaa can go, it can go into the, um, the forest and, like, get supplies and see the insects. Um, but it also means that you have that connection of, like, you know, that, that danger and that vulnerability as well, because, like, the spores can get into the valley and, like, hurt, harm people, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's also a force that just is not very visible, which I also think is very yes. interesting. Um, <clears throat> also in- interesting that Ghibli, because I wanted to look up how this is pronounced, because <laughs> I wanted to pronounce it correctly, and I thought, okay, what it ha- what uh, Japanese word is this based on? Mm-hmm. And actually, Ghibli... <laughs> It's not Japanese, it's Italian, and it's not um, originally even Italian, it's living Arabic, which is now Italian, which now the Italian language uses, and it means hot desert wind. (laughs) I don't know, that shocked me when I looked this up, I was like, what? There's even more wind connections. Yeah. It's also the name of an actual aircraft, which is like an Italian warship or something. also, Asbel lifts Nausicaa up like a plane by the end, yeah. so she sort of becomes the glider. Um, you have the, in the beginning, when they sort of explain how they have air that they can breathe in the valley, someone mentions that the ocean air protects us. Mm. So I thought that was also interesting. And then later at the climax, Obaba, Obaba, yeah. Obaba says, the air is thick with rage. Mm. So that's very interesting. So one of the reasons I thought Wind was also interesting in terms of when this movie was released and made mm-hmm. was because Wind is sort of this thing, when it sort of brings spores, when it sort of can bring, I don't know, people, planes, and that can sort of destroy at any moment. Yes. But the narrative about it was that there could, at any point, there could be like the beginning of a nuclear war. Yeah. Not just like a war, but like a massive destruction of something. Yeah. It's yeah. also interesting, I think, in terms of Germany, because Germany was sort of like the in-between point between like oh, the yes. West and the East. Another bridge with so many bridges. And like, <laughs> Very good point. And then a wall, again. Yeah. Currently, we're in West Berlin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah which is technically also, funnily enough, was in, within, like, it was West Germany. West mm-hmm. Berlin was West Germany. But it was within, encased in East Germany. <laughs> so this was sort of like the place where people were just... When, when I hear people that are old and then we talk about this, it was sort of this constant fear of, like, if a war starts, it's probably going to destroy this place. Ooh. Because this is where sort of the Russians and the Americans, like... Yeah, it's that. It's that the <laughs> the yeah. budding heads. Yes, it's that, the, the boundary, the kind of the yeah. boundary line. Yeah. But, yeah. But the, this idea, I was just thought the wind was an interesting, maybe sort of symbol of this constant threat that could sort of bring mm-hmm. a very huge destruction with it at any point, and you don't really know how to stop it because you cannot really stop the wind. Yes. But also, and I just thought of this, one of the ways that we were talking about envir- we we talked about environmentalism when I was in school was also that the problem with um, climate change or any of these things is that wind or air doesn't stop at the border yes you can't really tell like a heat wave to sort of stop at the border like no germany signed the climate accord and like if this other country didn't like must get allowed in here yes (laughs) just drop this wall yeah yeah Yeah. you can't really stop these things like air and climate and things aren't really stoppable by borders exactly it's that porous it's that like porousness it's that um interconnection yes that like there is no kind of strong boundary between like the human civilization and the natural civilization and that is that fit within the film there's that fear that of like the encroaching forest like every that's the kind of big fear that then um the tamikians like um play on they're like it's that kind of very like sort of populist rhetoric of like 
the other is coming like they're gonna come they're gonna take your land like we need to take it back we need to destroy this forest yeah. and it's that and they're playing on that fear of like the encroaching other and that interconnection to be like we need to mark out our territory we need to destroy this other thing that's like a threat to us or before it destroys us all these places are connected with the forest with the wind whether they want to or not mm-hmm. and what they think mm-hmm. what that means is that they have to destroy the other the forest the sea of decay and what they don't really understand is no you need to like actually unite with it in order to sort of save yourself yeah you need to learn to live with each other that's yes. the whole point I'd quite like to talk a little bit about, um, again, going to get a little bit technical, but the idea of the Anthropocene and the Thuluscene. So most people have heard of the Anthropocene, which is like the idea that like humans are having like a massive impact on the world and they've like changed the environment and the idea that we are in like a new era, like new ge- geological era of like human impact on the environment. So like kind of looking at like climate change. So like in years to come, if you looked back at this time, you'd say like, okay, let's look at like, if you looked at like fossil records or something, you'd see like millions of chicken bones or something. And that would be the kind of, because of like how much, like how many chickens are being farmed right now on the planet. Um, If you looked at like the kind of the temperature and stuff, it would be all these sort of like geological signs that like humans have had an impact on. But this kind of thinking kind of really centres the human and there's been quite a lot of like criticism of it. That's just quite simplified. But Donna Haraway basically came up with a different idea of like thinking about the world, which is the Thuluzine, which is basically this idea of like entanglement and staying with the trouble. So she uses like the figure of the like the phonic phonic figure, which is like a kind of many legged, sort of like tentacled, wormy sort of like creature that sort of like reminds me of something (laughs) yeah i wonder what what could this be like so yeah so yeah um this kind of like chthonic kind of many-legged creature that's sort of very entangled kind of constantly shifting and moving and is not like contained within itself is sort of like kind of everywhere and sort of like yeah composting everywhere and then compared to like the figure of the human are there are there any chthonic and like chthonic figures and like massive human figures uh, that we can think of in this film (laughs) Yeah, um, but yeah, I think... Um, when Lily first sort of mentioned this to me and when she said tentacles, I was like, oh, you mean like the ohm? Yeah, like the ohm, basically, yeah. Yeah, so the ohm have like their tentacles, they have their little feeler things that they like run with, but they also have like the golden tentacles. And I think that's a really interesting comparison. And then you also have like the giant warrior, which I think is like that symbol of like the Thulu scene. It's like this huge weapon that can like change, that has changed the face of the earth. It caused yes. like the apocalypse. So you've kind of got that anthropocenic, the anthropocene figure, and you have the thuluscene figure within the film, which I think is really interesting. Um, but kind of one of the main ideas of the thuluscene is that like you become with each other or not at all. Um, so again, that kind of interconnection, uh, but in a kind of more environmental lens. Yeah. Um, so like becoming with, so becoming like with each other, and also decentering the human. Do you think that's possible to sort of connect to this idea of Judith Butler saying this idea of sort of being with each other, yes. regardless of wanting to, regardless of sort of that there is a need for this, regardless of want. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Donna Haraway and the Thulu scene. She talks a lot about the idea of staying with the trouble and trying to learning to live on a contaminated earth, mm-hmm. which I think. Uh, in this sort of apocalypse narrative is very key also for like everyday life right now would yeah, be very useful exactly exactly <laughs> and 
this is why this is why I really love. I this wish this was more dystopian. I wish all these narratives were way more sort of removed from you. It's like I used to yeah really enjoy dystopia because I was like oh but if escapism yeah. fun to think about imaginary things that couldn't happen in that real life. That is a huge part of dystopian narratives. I think is the fact that this used to be like an escapist fantasy yeah. in a way or in a way we we're sort of talking about these narratives in terms of like war or like what life was like right after a war happened and like in the in the period where people sort of tried to rebuild themselves and now it's sort of like, well, this might be just our everyday reality yeah. at a certain point, um, or for a lot of people it already is. Yes, exactly. Right? It's been, and it's been for a while and it's not stopping. <gasps> um, but I think, Sorry. so like now Zika looks at this idea of like learning to live on a contaminated earth and learning um, what to do, which I think is kind of, again, links to the idea of, um, to like World War II and like the atomic bomb. What do you do when you have this capacity of like mutually assured destruction? Ooh, what do you do when you have this, this destructive power? Um, so you see that in the giant warriors, but you also see it when Nozuka just like decides, just starts killing people left and right when after her father dies. Like she has, because she's like obviously very talented in lots of different ways. She's also a very talented killer. If you look at her just in that scene, She's just like very strong. She's very passionate. She's very skilled, and she kills a load of people just like out. Also, killing people who are like twice her size, yes. and much more trained. Like she's not a warrior again, despite the title of the yeah. movie. Yeah, <laughs> she's not a warrior. She, she's That's not a point. warrior. That's not her job, but she's very good at it still. Yeah. So the reason I chuckled just now is just when you said this idea of we have this power, we just don't know the idea is whether we should use it. I just immediately thought of Jurassic Park. You know that thing of like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when. What is God? I'm gonna fuck up the quote, but it's like when they realized they could, they never asked whether we should. What Nazca chooses to do, and I think that's like a microcosm of like the larger question of like what do you do when you have this destructive power? Like Nazca decides that like she's not gonna use that destructive power. Like she see like she sees what she's capable of, and she says no, and she says never again. I think another thing that's interesting is that again, it's the idea of interconnectivity, and if you hurt the other, you hurt yourself. Um, so when she's like oh, in the middle of, so when she, yeah, exactly. When she's like um, killing all these soldiers, she stops because she stabs her, uh, her uncle. Lord Yupa. Yeah, she's killing all these people. Who steps in to show her this, I think. Yes. Very intentional. And that's when she realized she sees the blood and she's like, this is like, you know, this, I'm capable of killing. And also she's killing these people, but she also hurts someone she loves. So it's again, that idea of like. Um, if you hurt like the enemy in inverted commas, you're also hurting people that you love. The sort of faceless enemy sort of replaced with your Lord Jupiter in that yeah. scene, and sort of and when it becomes a familiar face, the life becomes a life. Like the life becomes yes. grievable, and you realize, and that's her realization of like, oh no, wait, these were all lives. Like I was kind of, I couldn't see because of like my grief. I depersonalized and my anger. dehumanized this enemy. Yes. The other. So you also get that you know she can't fight, and he like Lord Jupiter says like. If you keep fighting them, they're going to kill our people. Again, yes. that interconnectivity, that survivability, that vulnerability. And then when she, like, when Aspel's, like, shooting at the ship later in the film, she, like, kind of holds out her arms. And also with the soldiers, the Pejite soldiers later as well, they're like... When she tries to save the baby Om, she, in a uh, very sort of Jesus-like pose, stretches yeah. out her arms and just sort of gives them the most actually surface to mm. hit her. But that actually sort of stops them because they think because he's like i can't it's the princess it it's, humanizes her yeah it, she becomes they see in her yeah. the princess of their own people princess lasette yes. yeah princess lasette so it's again it's like if i hurt you i'm hurting myself i'm hurting yes. my own people they see that into she's that bridge between them she becomes that figure of the self as well as the other 
and she's that kind of that kind of that bridge and that like showing that like lack of boundary and that slippage between the two i think it's also interesting because i was just thinking about this it's sort of you see it from like the perspective of like the colonialized power mm. like not the colonizers because you don't oh. actually get to meet the power that's actually attacking you you're not actually getting to meet king leopold yeah you're just seeing the soldiers that he sent to you yes you know what i mean you're not sort of the power that's in charge of this you're the being the sort of the people that get attacked this definitely feeds into like a larger theme of like the kind of the marginal nature of this story yes because it's like you don't again you don't you're not at the center of like human power yes. you're at like the very margins you're in this valley next to the next to the sea and again, like this whole story is a very small part of a much wider story. Um, so you're going to get that, like, this is a much smaller, like, little section of, like, the human world. And it's also, like, a much smaller section of just the world in general and of, like, time. Yes. So in so many ways, like, this is just, this is not a hero's journey. Like, this is such a small section. Like, this is just, like, a small part, like, a small, tiny, like, little, little piece of the world. Um, but it's so connected, but it's still connected to stuff that's happening ages away. Like, yes. it's still connected, like, in terms of, like, empire, it's connected in terms of, like, the forests, and connected in terms of just everybody's lives and their interconnectivity. And that's a really good, yes. Yeah, but I think it's also interesting because maybe this is because this is not an American sort of narrative, mm. but I was just thinking what you just said sort of reminded me of the fact that when you read or watch The Hunger Games or... Sorry, I just keep <laughs> I just keep using these two examples. Um, I think it's a but good if you comparison. read or watch The Hunger Games or cut them, it it's not called The Descendants. Uh, Divergent. Thank you. It's a forgettable title. <laughs> was she in the, the Descendants? That's why I think you're thinking of this. I think she was actually Shailene Woodley. Um, <laughs> but if you talk about Hunger Games or or Divergent you tend to sort of get to see this world through the eyes of the person who gets destroyed sort of the power mm. the, the big power yes you yes. don't get to sort of see the sidelines of this yeah you don't get to see like the small story because i think this is also very much connected to this idea and this is not me accusing americans in general How but, this is, <laughs> but this is a very american narrative of like i'm gonna be the one mm. to destroy the big villain mm. You don't actually get to see that here at all. And it's also, I think, interesting because it sort of does teach you, like it does matter what you do on the sidelines. It doesn't just matter, like the whole point of your existence isn't just, even though she's part of this legend, the whole point of your existence is to know that sort of, you are not going to be the one that destroys, I don't know, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> if only. So we are in this dystopian world. And like I said in the beginning, when we talk about dystopia, we usually tend to sort of get as an audience, I mean, we get yes. to sort of see cool new technology. And so in this movie, I did want to talk about technology for a second because yes. we sort of have this dichotomy, like Lily mentioned before, of very sort of old school, very basic mm -hmm. things, things that we consider now to be very, quite basic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just basic. seeing in my head this idea of just zero waste sort of lifestyle. Oh. Um, Instagram is just going like, to reclaim, like, God, they're going to gentrify windmills or something. Yeah, I, I, I think that's already, that's already started. Oh, dear God. That's definitely already started. So technology in this world, in my opinion, is sort of depicted as neither sort of positive or negative in mm. and of itself. But it's sort of depending on who uses it to, to what end. Because mm. I first thought big warplanes are sort of shown as negative. But they aren't really. They're mostly shown as quite ineffective because they break yes. apart quite quickly. Yeah. And sort of in, in opposition to the small glider. Um, but at the same time, what protects the valley of the wind people in the end is sort of this old, old, old place. Yes. Which is destroyed. But oh, it is sort of what stops the ohms from like completely stampeding over them. Yeah. 
But at the same time, I think it's sort of this idea of technology maybe sort of as a giant force that sort of destroys too much at once and as opposed to sort of a small technology that this destroys a small bit. Because you see this the same thing here with fire. Mm. There's a, the seven days of fire, which was this giant where we sort of destroyed everything. But we also see the Valley of the Wind people, the villagers, using small fires to, for example, kill small spores yeah. in to protect their trees. So it's about this, so this idea that if you have a certain amount of power, mm. which also links to what you just talked about, if you have a certain amount of power, you have to think about how much impact that has and then to use it wisely as a, yes. as a result of that. Yes, absolutely. If you have the power to erect um, giant warriors, they're going to wreak havoc whether you want to or not. Yeah. But if you have a small, if you have something like fire, you can also use that to your advantage without sort of causing massive havoc for everybody. Yes. Yeah, but we have sort of these older technologies sort of shown in opposition to sort of these modern types of technologies that we sort of see our hero use, for yes. example. Yeah. One of the more old school type of weapons, not weapons, sorry, tools that Nausicaa uses is... Mm. Um, like a cylinder on a string or something. Is that right? I yeah. I don't remember. She sort of just swings it around. Yeah. So it makes a sound and it calms the insects down. Mm -hmm. So it's very important. Sort of similar to like bird flutes or maybe even closer to those like whistles you can use for like dogs or something. Yeah. But I think key, what's key with that like piece of technology is that it's not like kind of trying to control the elements. I think you see, because yes. I think like, with like, um, again, with like um, Nautica's glider, she's like working with the elements. It's like, it works with the wind. Um, this uh, like, it doesn't disturb sort of the nature. Yeah, it's like the guns disturb it, but that thing, um, what's really key about Nausicaa is she doesn't try and control nature. She just sort of like understands uh, like insect behavior and she knows how to like be like, okay, no, you're, what's happening here is you're afraid. I can change that by like working with you and working with your emotions to get you to a state to protect it. Like she's like, um, when that insect is in the valley and um, is like going to attack the humans, she's like, no, you're you're in danger here. I need to get you back to where you, I need to get you back to the forest because that's where you'll be safe and that's where we'll be safe. So she knows that like she understands its behavior and so she can like use that and she can work with what she knows of that insect to then protect herself and her people, but also the insect as well. And so yeah, you have those those technologies that work with like the natural environment and with the wind like the windmill and like the glider and then you have like the ships that sort of the big ones that like break apart and like don't really work terribly well with like the natural world and just like end up going down in flames yeah that insect charm is also i think a good symbol for the way that she treats insects the same as she treats humans to a degree yes. because she says the same thing to the insect that she yeah. says to kushana her highness kushana <laughs> <laughs> yes very important her highness kushana because she says to both of these people go home yeah like she said she doesn't even say it as like she says to the insect and to kushana like you don't belong here like go back to where you were happy go home which yeah which i think is interesting because it's like these two places are interconnected but also like there's still that acknowledgement of like, you don't belong in this space. Like you yeah. are not safe here. Like this is not your environment. Yeah. Like it's not safe here for you. For you. Yeah. yeah. When the humans are in like um, the forests, like you're putting the insects in danger. When the insects are in the heat, more the human space, it's like you're putting them in danger. She asks for forgiveness from the insects when she's in the sea of decay. Yes. It's learning how to live together. Even if you can't live, even if that relationship is fraught and that relationship is dangerous. It's still trying to learn to live together in those environments and instead it's of like working... the thing you said yeah. about the balance never being sort of static like it's not yes. ever like a perfect balance it just stays that way yeah it's always yeah it's always shifting it's always like vulnerable and slightly dangerous and also with the technologies again 
the kind of idea of like working with and against nature and like the fact that if you bring a gun into the forest that's going to disrupt that environment um but if you bring the glider then that's going to then you can like work through that environment if you bring the um the insect charm that works with like that environment and with those people it uses one of the elements of the earth not to yes. like, connect this to avatar <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but exactly and yeah and that's what the windmills do as well they work with the elements to create stuff for the humans i mean that's like a very sort of like that's that kind of like living in harmony with nature type thing this movie is not preachy no which is kind of amazing because the whole message of the movie is sort of very clear still yeah but it doesn't feel like someone sort of sitting in and be like hey recycle like yeah <laughs> yeah because it's also yeah but it's also complicated even though it's yeah. like you know it's not just like we can all be friends it's like no you are still like a date it's like humans are a danger and like humans can be very very dangerous and also like just because this is a flashpoint they get over it doesn't mean that like there won't be flashpoints in the future this is one small like moment where things could have gone horribly wrong they managed not to but there could still be you know humans that come along in the, the future cold war yeah yeah <laughs> detente anyone <laughs> but like there could still be moments in the future where something horrible like this happens again where that because that border is always precarious that kind of that sort of safety and harmony is like it's never really there it's always sort of shifting around Yeah. There's always like a slight danger. And Nausicaa sort of has this realization that what actually the Sea of Decay and the toxic jungles actually doing is clearing this air. Mm. And they have this realization that the insects that are sort of very aggressively been seen as this thing that sort of is attacking them and encroaching yes. on their path mm. is actually just protecting the source that even allows them to exist on this earth still yes. and might be sort of the future way for them to exist at all. Yeah. Because this is where the pure air and the pure water comes from. Yeah, and this is how the earth will heal. So yeah, it allows human survival, but importantly, it also um, extends beyond the human and it's like the whole world as well. So yeah, kind of protecting humanity or like allows the humans to have a potential future. Thank also you for allows... that point. <laughs> yeah, but also allows um, everyone else to have a future as well, like the whole of the rest of the world. Thank you, because again, I was, without even noticing it, I was centering humans in this narrative yeah. again, even though that's not the point. <laughs> I mean, it is like, like obviously the main characters are human. In yeah, yeah, story, sure. But, but, but you're yeah. right, like this is not just about like, the humans surviving, this is also about an entire ecosystem still sort yeah. of, or some ecosystem to exist somehow. Yeah. So it is important for the humans, but also, yeah, importantly important beyond the human as well. I did want to talk about Nausicaa. Yes. About um, our female hero in this story, mm -hmm. because we were talking about in the beginning, like how to say her name, <laughs> because we watched it together once in English yes. with English subtitles <laughs> and then we watched it sorry just watch everything with subtitles we weren't really sure how to pronounce Nausicaa yeah. and then looked it up <laughs> and as it turns out Nausicaa is again um, a name that's from Greek mythology yeah from the Odyssey yeah and it actually means like burner of ships mm. because I kept thinking like isn't nautical or something why do I keep thinking yeah. of like a sea or something and it's because like The first part of her name means ships, and the, the second part just means like to burn, mm. which is kind of interesting because she doesn't really, she's not really the person in the story who like attacks ships, like no. it's more like Asbel's thing. Yeah, it's a weird, I, I'm interested 
into like why they chose that name particularly because yeah also if you like in the odyssey i did actually read this part of the odyssey but um it's the part where um Odysseus, he stumbles out of the forest naked yeah, or something naked, and then all her maids go running and then she's like oh it's fine though and then they take him to the palace and he tells the story and she like tries to marry him and some i can't quite remember the end of it now but not it kind of has like nothing to do with like this story <laughs> at all I, I yeah i'm not quite sure like why there's that connection there why they chose that name she's someone who we meet immediately as being curious being interested in the sports being interested in her environment we mm. see her as being very smart this isn't sort of like an impossibly yeah. understandable level of genius yes she's smart and she's very practical but yes. you see her being doing this and you see her doing this in a way that mm. is sort of for us as an audience to sort of be like you yeah. see her sort you of see like, the steps you see the process yes and that's kind of why it's impractical for example at the very beginning yes so when she finds the ohm shell, mm -hmm. she sort of realizes that that can be used for tools, but like that's also a very basic way of just reusing things yes. from nature for yeah, your yeah, own. Yeah. Like, yeah, and she doesn't take all of it. She's like, she just takes the one thing, unlike the Tamikians who take every, like when they come to the valley, they raid it and they take everything. Yeah. She kind of takes what she needs. But you see her taking out like a, um, a gun bullet. Yeah and spreading sort of the, the gunpowder around the eye of the ohm. And then you see her using her gun almost like a lighter yeah. to sort of inflame the gunpowder so it explodes. And it's that very, it's again, like going back to what we were talking about before about the slowness of the start, it kind of shows oh, yeah. you, it shows you it's like step by step, this is practically how you exist in this world. And I think it's important that they set up that kind of slowness and that practicality at the very beginning, because this is like a kind of a part of technology that we can understand as well. And there are like things like her glider where there's sort of the, um, the energy source that we don't quite understand. But because they've set up this idea of like, okay, she's a very practical person. You see her kind of step by step, sort of doing these like um, this practical task. It kind of translates across to kind of her later actions. Like they don't need to explain everything later because you've already kind of been given this impression of her as like a practical character. So that kind of carries across to things that you don't completely understand. But you don't need to be taught all of the science of this world because you can just assume from that practicality of like her early actions that like okay this is also like a practical thing you should enough of the technology yeah. in a way that you can follow it yes. in order sort of when you see sort of more advanced technology you don't sort of sit there and go like well explain this to me as well yeah it's like you don't want because this is a really nice thing this film like doesn't do it doesn't over explain everything yeah. like there's a bit of exposition at the beginning but once you got through that like it just doesn't over explain everything you're just sort of left to allow that to kind of wash over you and just sort of be like, yes, I accept this as part of this world. I do think that's interesting also in terms of sort of the difference between, I mean, nothing's comparable to Disney at this point, just in mm. terms of size. Yeah. But if this was Disney owned, then oh. there would have been sort of a sequel and a prequel. And I watched the like Han Solo prequel and they oh. explain what the dice were mm -hmm. that you had. No one ever asked you. No. And we were talking about this movie, we were sort of thinking like, do they ever call this like wooden thing something? And we were like, and then rewatching it, realized that it was called an insect charm at one point. Mm -hmm. But this isn't named, we don't get every single aspect of her over explained. Yeah. 
which no one needs. And I'm kind of hoping in general that that's maybe also the way of more animation movies or movies in general. I don't need everything to be explained to me and sort of pre-chewed for me. Yeah, because also it's boring because then it's like, it's in many ways more interesting to just sort of like let your imagination like come up with ideas. Yeah. What were we talking about when we were kind of like trying to, oh, it was the ohm. So like the baby ohm that, or like the kind of teenage sort of middle grown ohm that you see at the end of the film that she rescues. I, my kind of personal headcanon is that that's the same ohm that she rescues as a child. Mm-hmm. And so when you see the flashback of her, like with that ohm, instead of killing that ohm when they take it from her, they kind of put it out somewhere. And so it's that same, that connection between the two of them as like the futures of their two, the, the two people, the insect, the ohm and, and like the humans. And it's that, so they have that connection because both of them are the symbols of the future and both of them survive and they the like next generation yeah they're the next generation and so i kind of and but that's not that's not necessarily what it is but i think it's that's something interesting that i kind of picked up from the text and i was like oh this could be a possibility and it's really interesting the implications the story of allows you to think yes. about things like this the story allows us to think yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah the director the writing doesn't sort of cheat you like you wouldn't understand which sort of doesn't assume that you don't have enough creativity in your brain. No matter what age you are, no matter what you're thinking, type, like what you, whatever your type of thinking is, you're allowed to sort of fill in gaps for yourself. Yeah, it allows that space to then also discuss it and have that nuance as well, because it's like also that could like not be the case. And so you, yeah. can, so you can discuss it and it, it adds those layers of like interest and like layers of meaning. Because if you give, if you state exactly what the meaning is, then you don't have, really have layered meaning because it's just what it is. But yeah, because we've discussed like if that's like my interpretation of the ohm was like the correct interpretation or whatever, and like kind of what it could mean, what it could not mean, and other things as well about this film. This whole podcast is like you know yeah. we can discuss layered meaning because it doesn't tell you exactly what to think. The whole point of like finding um, what's it called Easter eggs and things. Mm. I don't necessarily want all of those things confirmed for me all the time, mm. and also don't want everything to sort of be laced with a thousand easter eggs that I get to then find later yeah because it doesn't make anything fun mm. Nausicaa sort of presented to us as a leader and a pacifist but she's also kind of and I know this is a very sort of western take but she's also sort of the messiah mm. in sort of this legend of the village as being someone who's gonna you know walk in a golden field and lead them to a peaceful future also, this sort of replicates this idea that I have in my head about the fact that you see her twice, sort of with her arms stretched out, like yeah. Jesus on the cross, and she does sacrifice herself for her people. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to talk about her in terms of her gender representation because I do think that's very important. Sort of more tomboyish, I would say. She's very much, in terms of her behavior and her gender performance, sort of seen as pacifistic and soft. Which I've seen, I think, is very important because they seem sort of as weak female traits. Mm. But in the story, what we are presented with is very much that Nausicaa is neither naive nor weak. Kushana accuses her as, you are too naive at one point, And she responds with, what are you so afraid of? Mm. So Nausicaa completely sort of rejects this idea of her sort of being sort of the weak one and the one who doesn't understand. And she sort of accuses Kushana of being the person who's actually just too afraid of these insects to deal with them. Mm. And that's sort of the wrong approach here. The way that she phrases things, not in every single sentence, but a lot of the time she sort of talks about it more in sense of community. Mm. She talks about like, let's both like get out of here. Like, let's like do this. Let's try this. She doesn't sort of make it about herself. In terms of a uh, chosen one narrative, which this still is, Mm. It's sort of less about sort of her as an individual saving everybody, 
Also, one of the things that makes um, Nausicaa really smart is that she knows how to deal with fear. And she knows that a lot of these people mm -hmm. in this ecosystem, in this planet, deal with, first react with fear. Yes. And we are represented with this because when she meets Lord Yupa, he brings with him a fox squirrel, and she immediately just sort of reaches out to this thing that sort of jumps on her and then wants to bite her. Mm -hmm. The thing is scared of her. And she offers up her finger for this thing to bite her. So I think sort of the message, and again, everything that sort of meets you, if it sort of reacts aggressively, it's not necessarily because the thing in and of itself like is just aggressive by nature. Maybe it just reacts that way to you because it just is afraid of you first of all, because it doesn't know how you're going to act. I mean, it presumes that you're going to act the same way. And I think that's yeah. really key with Nausicaa because she kind of stops that cycle of kind of repeated violence and repeated, you know, responding to fear with fear and rage with rage. Um, like with um, Asbel, you know, her, his sister dies, so he attacks the planes, but in response she chooses not to attack back, and that breaks that cycle. Um, and so whenever she's confronted with some sort of rage, she chooses not to, she chooses not to respond in kind. And um, that does cause her some problems, like with um, Kushana, um, she, like, you know, she, she lets her live and she lets her survive and saves her, and that causes her people problems in the future. But she still chooses to make yeah to not respond to fear with fear. In terms of gender presentation and sort of gender performance, I think one of the things that we constantly are shown in movies, especially in sci-fi narratives that are end up sort of being about feeding a certain type of power, is that violence is a very important tool here. Mm -hmm. And Lily has talked about this before, the scene where she sort of attacks and actually kills soldiers. In Estapa, Lord Yupa. Mm -hmm. One of the things that she does is that if she breaks down and cries, mm. and she says the violence has to stop. And I wish we would see this in way more male characters, not just the sort of brooding thing of like some superhero being like, God, what have I done? I don't know, the sort of bad man yeah. sort of just feeling sorry for yourself kind of BS. Like, I don't need that, to be honest. <laughs> but I would love to see more narratives that sort of also show not just female characters as sort of being the ones that sort of are aware of the fact that their actions have consequences mm. and I did like the fact that this movie sort of chose to show you that even responding and mind you like she's enraged because her father has been killed yeah. like she's absolutely entitled to like the rage and the anger that she feels but you still are shown that the violence that Sheena then sort of reacts with yeah. has very negative consequences and you talked about this in terms of the, the academic theories, right? Like these things, like you are still like dealing with another that's going to have consequences for you as well, mm. right? Yeah. And Pop Culture Detective has a very good video essay on this. Mm. But the only time I have ever, I just remember sort of seeing masculinity portrayed in this way was in Fantastic Beasts. Mm. The idea of, um, what was his first name? Newt Scamander. It's Newt. <laughs> I just Scamander. Yeah, Scamander. But the way that Newt Scamander's like main strength was not the fact that he was the strongest, he wasn't the smartest, he wasn't the most talented wizard, yeah. he wasn't the most um, brilliant wizard. He was kind. Yes. That was his superpower. Like his whole point wasn't to sort of defeat the big beast or whatever. Mm. The point was to understand them and to calm them down, which is also what Hagrid is sort of based yes. on. I love this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I highly recommend, by the way, to check out uh, a trans reading of Hagrid, 
that the Gailey Prophet did, which is a very great Harry Potter podcast, approaching another that can be dangerous to you, but to still approach it with kindness and love mm. without being um, unreasonable or impractical. Yeah. I did, in terms of like her kindness, I did want to talk about that scene, if we can, where she um, lands and crashes the plane into this sort of small island in the middle of the acid lake. Mm. Because this is such a beautiful scene, the way it's being depicted, I think. But also you sort of see her sort of, not just sacrificing herself for her people, but just for this other home. And she knows that if this ohm dies, because that's what this ohm will do, if it like goes into the acid lake, it's going to die. That like that means, well, it, she cares about that ohm in itself, yes. which is really important. But she also knows that that's connected to her people's future. But it also, it's not all about her people's future. It's also about the ohm themselves and that ohm in particular. But also it's about her people. So yeah. it's like, it's not like a kind of either one takes priority. It's like they're both very important to her in their own separate ways. Um, yeah, so it's like not human centric, but it's also not just like completely disregarding humans. She still cares about her community yeah. who will die if this own dies. Also, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the music in this. So this was the score was made by Joe Hisaishi, whose actual name is Mamoru Fujisawa. And I thought it was interesting because all of these Ghibli movies get an image album which is different from like a traditional score. And so the composer sort of got storyboards and keywords and then worked on his own while Miyazaki worked on his own. So they sort of developed this at the same time without necessarily knowing how this intersects, even though Miyazaki himself is quite sort of pedantic and controlling about um, the end result, at least that's what I've read. <laughs> and the music that starts playing when they go into the Valley of the Wind also sort of sounds like, in terms of like who is sort of seen as more interesting in the story the animals and the insects actually get more music mm. they get more score like it starts when the ohm breaks out of like the sand and we sort of get like the synth pop and it sort of gets very aggressive very yeah. quickly mm -hmm. we also get like a lot of um, chirping and snapping in the background so just in general in terms of music and sort of additional sounds the insect and sort of the nature that surrounds the humans in the story mm -hmm. sort of get way more attention paid to them. And I just thought it was interesting, like the chirps and cries of the animals. Yeah. So it's so much more important for the soundscape of this world than the humans are. I wanted to mention one scene which I really loved. <laughs> My favorite scene in this film, which I didn't notice like the last couple times I watched it. So there was this kid who was sort of entrusted with like protecting the door and so there was another kid like bringing a message and again these kids live in the same valley they know each other but the whole point of it was like this kid was going to like create a password for the door he said like wind and the other kid was meant to say valley and he just didn't say it. he was like no i'm not letting you through and i just thought it was really adorable was there any scene that you were thinking of maybe that Ooh, you really loved um... I really like that bit where um, they're in the glider. So this is the part where they've just, um, Asbel's just like destroyed um, like the big ships and they're all kind of like crashing to the ground. And like the guys from um, the Valley of the Wind, like the older guys are like in this glider. They're adorable. <laughs> and then like Nozka convinces them to just like calm down and start like chucking stuff out of the glider. And then they're, so they're like chucking all these things out and like, they're like, this is so wasteful. <laughs> me and Anna in the kitchen like oh, I don't want to chuck this food out that's been in the fridge for like three weeks it's so wasteful <laughs> it's like another relatable moment yeah 
Okay, so this is our first attempt at the first of the series and hopefully you still with us and if anything, please watch this movie yeah, because it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah. And thank you, Anna, for introducing me to this film. So yeah, if you, if you like our podcast... Oh yeah, please subscribe. <laughs> yeah, subscribe. And you can find us at uh, LilianaPod on Twitter and Instagram. Yes. That's right. So that's Liliana, spelled L-I-L-I-A-N-N-A. Yes. Pod. Um, and we also have a Hotmail account, which is... Liliana's pre-read mediatic at hotmail.com. Yeah. I just realized we sort of set up that we were always going to be having a recommendation at the end. Oh, shit. I forgot. Oh, <laughs> no. Um, uh, um, oh, We Are Lady Parts. Oh, my God, yes. yes. Wait, did you watch it? No, I haven't. Actually, yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't recommend this yet. I've had so many conversations about this show and I haven't. E- so, We Are Lady Parts. <laughs> I don't know. Can, that could be your recommendation, seeing as I haven't actually seen the show. <laughs> okay, this week only because we're exhausted and we have been not attacked by insects, but just sort of been they're attacking, they're encroaching on us. We must fight back. Yeah. So for this week only, we're gonna have a joint recommendation of We Are Lady Parts. It's beautiful. It's Channel Four in America. It's on Peacock. Treat yourself. Watch We Are Lady Parts. Yeah. Thank you for listening.